0: Hey everyone, Einstein, Curie, Hawking, Erskine and Vance. What do they have in common? As of today, they're all science experts. Today's book is Physics of the Impossible by Michio Kaku. After I read it, I printed myself a little physics diploma. <laughs> I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and after learning
1: from this book that it would take a laser the size of the galaxy to puncture a hole into space-time,
0: I've had to remove an item from my bucket list. <laughs> And I'm David Vance. My mom says that when I was little, I told her I found a flaw in the theory of relativity. So I hope I can approach today's podcast with the same level of confidence.
1: (laughs) Physics of the Impossible explores how certain technologies may be possible in the future. Time travel, invisibility, mind reading, basically everything
0: that's happened to Harry Potter. And this is The Book Pile. So recently I was reading about the law of conservation of energy, and I realized you can take the energy you would have spent reading this book and use it to rate and review our podcast. And I was like, wow, I, I love science. <laughs> <laughs>
1: A reviewer named Discumbobulus says, quote, this is the podcast I didn't know I needed. These guys make you think deep, Parentheses sometimes and help big ideas go down smoothly with a generous spoonful of sugar slash humor or at least kellen does because dave's made it clear he doesn't
0: eat sugar <laughs> smiley face i love that this thing i do for medical reasons has become my personality <laughs> finally our next two books are Hitmakers and a prehistory of the far side uh Kellen, you know that idea that the Olympics should have one normal person do the event to show how amazing the other athletes are. Mm -hmm. I think that's why Farsight and Calvin and Hobbes got printed next to Garfield. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, don't forget, we're doing our first live podcast October 29th at Improv Broadway in Provo, Utah. You can get tickets at improvbroadway.com. We're doing a roast of New Moon, which I haven't read yet. So now I'm like, what if I love it?
1: All right, and without any further ado, here are our five favorite lessons from Physics of the Impossible. I feel like impossible always has to be said with wider eyes uh-huh. than the rest of the
0: sentence. I like saying it skeptically. <laughs> Parentheses, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see is the perfect passive-aggressive thing to say anytime someone tells you their plans. <laughs> like, oh yeah, I'm uh, I'm going to major in engineering. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> All right, we're going to successfully storm Utah Beach. (laughs) Gosh. You want to hear some crazy D-Day facts? Yes. So, the Allies made an entire decoy army, complete with, I think, a false General Patton, or one of the generals, they had, like, a stand-in for him. And so they had, like, inflatable tanks and these, like, fake planes that I think they made in, like, Hollywood studios. Was Hitler's son having a birthday party? (laughs) so when normandy started the germans thought it was a feint so they, they didn't send all their troops to normandy to block that invasion they were still hanging out parked across the english channel from this huge decoy army and it took them a long time to realize like oh that's the actual invasion over there whoa and then they also the germans didn't think it could be normandy because normandy doesn't have a harbor so the allies made a portable harbor that they could like piece together Whoa! okay lesson one there may be patterns to intelligent life. So he says, say you meet an intelligent alien, what would you expect them to be like? And for me, based on Marvel and avatar, hot, (laughs) marketable and hot. So he says, you know, some scientists think intelligent organisms, no matter where they come from, would probably have to have at least three things. So one is sight or sensing. Two is a thumb for grabbing or a tentacle or claw. And three is speech or language. And what fascinates me is, I just read a book on metaphor called Eyes and Other, and look at how many of our words for intelligence are about either seeing or grasping. So you can say, I see what you mean, or you're bright, or you're brilliant, or you're dim. Or you can say, I grasp that idea, I have a handle on that idea.
1: I don't hear what you're talking about.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Another thing the author thinks, and I feel a little dunked on, is intelligent life would probably be carnivores because <laughs> he says on average predators are smarter than their prey because they have to outsmart them and ambush them. <laughs> and I'm like, maybe the smartest ones are the ones who then gave up delicious meat <laughs> <laughs> for no personal benefit.
1: Yeah, it's funny with like all the cave art that you see. It's never like a giant cabbage. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Lesson two, teeny tiny spaceships could be our first chance at achieving light speed. So there are a few problems with traveling at light speed or near light speed. It would take an unbelievable amount of fuel. So the best idea so far is something they call a ramjet, and it's a spaceship that collects hydrogen in space and harvests it for a fusion engine. The only problem being that the hydrogen scoop on the front of the ship would have to be 100 miles wide. <laughs> so it, it sort of changes uh, the aesthetic of every spaceship you've seen in a movie.
0: And <laughs> they need to look
1: like Rhode Island. <laughs> Just imagine like a dinner plate traveling sideways and there's a grain of sand on the back. And that's an X-Wing fighter. So the second thing is that it would take two years for the human body to safely accelerate to 670 million miles an hour. (laughs) So yeah, again, every space movie has lied to you. Luke Skywalker would be Luke dead splat in a (laughs) millisecond on his first Millennium Falcon trip. And then it would—it takes just as long to slow down. Obviously, I love Star Wars, Star Trek, but it is funny when these ships are able to achieve light speed in a second, but then when they slow down, they're like, everything's bumpy,
0: <laughs> like a little asteroid hits the top of it. They're like, oof. The other thing I remember about the slowing down part is, if you are nuclear-fueled, now you're having to blast in front of you, so you're driving into the radiation you just created. <laughs> But maybe that's not the case with fusion, because you're just making helium, rather than if it were fission-driven. That was a really nerdy way to hit the brakes on that joke. (laughs) I'm just uh, decelerating the joke.
1: (laughs) I mean, the upside to then traveling through your own nuclear radiation is that then all of those astronauts turn into superheroes. (laughs) So when I say teeny tiny spaceships, I mean that they would be probes designed on the molecular level. So they would probably be unmanned. And they would be (laughs) propelled by ions, which we can currently launch at near light speed uh, with household voltages. Wow. Um, So these tiny things would be equipped with sensors and cameras, much like other space probes that we've sent. uh, Only we'd have to send these in the thousands at a time just because of the inherent risk involved with shooting a tiny thing at light speed like it could explode if it crashed into some dust or one of those who's from whoville
0: just be careful that if you're the scientist working on it that you don't accidentally shrink your kids (laughs) (laughs) all right lesson three we are in the ultimate goldilocks zone But before the science, Kellen, have you ever heard the original Goldilocks story?
1: Maybe not.
0: So in the original, it's not Goldilocks. It's an old woman who's been kicked out of her family home because she's a disgrace. (laughs) So she's dirty. She's evil. She swears a lot. And the bears aren't a family. They're just three bear guys who live together. So this cussy old woman eats their food, breaks a chair, sleeps in a bed, and they come home and are like, who did this? And she leaves. (laughs) All right. But the science stuff, the Goldilocks zone. So we are incredibly lucky to have Earth because, you know, if you change things just slightly, we probably all die. So there's this long list of examples. If we're further from the sun, the oceans freeze. If we're closer, they boil. If we didn't have Jupiter and Saturn to fling meteors into space, they estimate we get hit by meteors a thousand times more often, which imagine the thing that killed the dinosaurs was just always happening. (laughs) If we rotate any slower, it'll be freezing at night and boiling during the day. And if we rotate faster, there are crazy storms. If we don't have a big moon, our rotation might go unstable and make terrible weather that kills all life. If we're closer to the center of the galaxy, we get deadly radiation. But if we're further, we wouldn't have the heavy elements we need for life. If we don't have a magnetic field, there's nothing to deflect deadly radiation from the sun. And then even with all those, like, perfectly fortuitous conditions we still almost went extinct. So 100,000 years ago, it looks like we were down to a few hundred humans or maybe a couple thousand. But then I bet there were some activists who stepped in and really raised awareness and really saved the humans. (laughs) Also, the Earth has been a giant ice ball and a giant volcano hell. So when Robert Frost is like, will it end in fire or ice? It's like both, bro. (laughs) All this to say, we're incredibly fortunate that Earth sustains life at all.
1: Yeah, the the author also talks about how not only does the Earth inhabit this Goldilocks zone, but it's also possible that our universe is in a Goldilocks universe. Mm -hmm. He he brings up some strikingly persuasive theories as to the existence of a multiverse or infinite universes, and that it's very possible that in trillions of them, it's Too cold or too hot for life to exist in that entire universe. Sure. But now, when I used to hear the term, the phrase Goldilocks zone, I would imagine a little girl with like ringlets. And now, now I just picture that booing old woman from The Princess Bride.
0: (laughs) Now I picture 80 different ways that 7 billion people could die horribly. (laughs) It's funny to me that. You know, the odds of an Earth are astronomically low, but we do live in an astronomy. <laughs> <laughs> like, don't react to this the way I know you're going to react to it. There's something like 200 sextillion stars. <laughs> it's the sextillion, <laughs> I got that. So, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's so huge that I just think probably some pretty unlikely things happen out there.
1: Could you change that to uh, 200 make love-tillion? <laughs> All right, lesson four, we are way farther from true AI than we think. I say than we think because movies are always very optimistic when it comes to how soon we'll have monumentally advanced tech. So Back to the Future 2 was supposed to happen in 2015. The AI humanoids in iRobot are perfected in the year 2035. <laughs> uh I'm not sure when 2001 Space Odyssey was supposed <laughs> to happen, but you get the idea. So Ray Kurzweil, who uh, is a futurist, he predicts, and predicts is putting it softly because he doesn't guess when things will happen. He just states it. <laughs> he said in 2010 that we would reverse engineer the human brain by 2030. Um, but as of 2015, the largest brain mapped was that of a C. elegans, which is a microscopic worm, which had 302 neurons. The human brain has 100 billion. Wow! So uh, this isn't to say that we won't have some simulated version of AI using general programming, uh, even before we unlock all the secrets of the brain. But I think it'll likely be the Android equivalent of that virtual operator you get when you call Verizon. Like in the future, you walk into a Chili's and the Android host will say, how many at your table? And you'll say, could I just use your bathroom? And he'll say, say one for one guest. Say two for two. And you'll just be standing there screaming in his face like, speak to a representative.
0: And then he'll murder your whole family.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Because humans are the biggest danger to themselves. (laughs)
0: <laughs> humans are the biggest obstacle to Chile's success
1: <laughs> <laughs> but even using programming language to simulate human behavior is trouble from the outset because as the author kaku says quote the brain is not an adding machine in other words we can't just think of it as a big computer he says the supreme irony is that machines can effortlessly perform tasks that humans consider hard such as multiplying large numbers or playing chess but machines stumble badly when asked to perform tasks that are simple for humans such as walking across a room or gossiping with a friend which are my favorite two things to do. <laughs> it's funny that like those are the examples he shows like is he comparing every human to a Jane Austen character? <laughs> Have you noticed that that happens, like, several times in every Regency-era novel? Where Someone like, goes
0: for a walk and gossips?
1: So, yeah, let's go for a turn. And they're just, uh-huh. like, walking around the room talking about the people inside that room.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So that's it for that. Oh, by the way, I think Star Trek played it safe by having their timeline uh, start closer to the year 2300. And Star Wars played it even safer by having it in a galaxy far, far <laughs> away. So twice as far as regular far.
0: I think that AI might be far away or might be close. And I just think we're terrible at predicting when tech breakthroughs are going to happen. Because first I look at all the breakthroughs that were just accidents, (laughs) like Teflon, chemo, microwaves, penicillin, dry cleaning, that sort of thing. And then I look at how many people thought flight was impossible right before the Wright brothers did it, or how People mocked Goddard because he thought that you could make a rocket. (laughs) Nassim Taleb talks about this idea where he's like, science is exploration. And if you knew ahead of time what you were going to find, you wouldn't need to explore. So I think I'm just in a boat where I'm like... I don't think any of us really have any idea when a certain breakthrough is going to happen. Yeah. Well, for me,
1: a lot of this comes from just being disappointed every year that goes by when, <laughs> as a kid, I watched these movies. And I do agree that, like, I think that, like, AI is not going to look like the Terminator, right? <laughs> and that maybe that's maybe the market will decide uh, what it is, but that's not what I'm afraid of. Like, Robocop was a cyborg, right? And so that's what we think of when we think of cyborgs, part human, part, uh, technology but I think that's what everyone who has a phone right now is like it's not the image that we saw in our heads of like split down the middle machine eye on one side human on the other Um, it is technically detached from us but like, you know how that that feeling that you get when your phone is in the other room <laughs> and you think every important person you've ever met is trying to contact you if your phone isn't in your pocket. And the fact that we just rely on it instantly for information, it really is an extension of the brain. It's just not the cool cyborg that we imagined in the 90s. <laughs>
0: I'm going to come to our next podcast with my phone surgically implanted in my skull <laughs> and you'll call and I'll be like, hello. <laughs> I was wrong. So I agree that
1: we're not good at predicting things, but I I think that some things have come way sooner and some things are ridiculously farther away than we think that they are. And uh, I think that humanoids fall in that category. Sure. Um, Just because of like, we aren't trending toward that yet. I know that a breakthrough could happen at any second, but we also don't have Jaws 14, which Back to the Future 2 promised. So my takeaway and opinion is... Don't be afraid of robots taking over the world during your lifetime. Be afraid of the AI that is currently using your behavior to supply an addictive chain of social media content. <laughs> no, I think that's far fetched.
0: I do think it's kind of like, kind of like how every two days USA Today is like, this might be the cure for cancer, and then then you like look at the study and it was done on a it was like on three mice. <laughs> I read this book called Super Intelligence by Nick Bostrom, and it's about the threat of AI, like rogue AI, and I'm so interested in the topic, but the writing style was some of the most boring writing I've ever read in my life, and I think it was written by an AI. <laughs> <laughs> okay, lesson five. Sometimes beauty can lead to truth. So, Kellen, have you heard the story of the Dirac equation? No. So, I heard this on PBS Space Time. And I'm going to start with a big disclaimer that I might get parts of this very wrong. I'm not a physicist. I'm just a comedian trying his best. (laughs) (laughs) So Paul Dirac is this theoretical physicist, and he wants to improve an equation called the Schrodinger equation. And you don't need to understand it to get the story. But basically, things like electrons, photons, they act as both waves and particles, and the Schrodinger equation helps us understand that. So Dirac says, this equation has a problem. It doesn't work with relativity, among other problems, meaning when a particle is going near the speed of light, the equation breaks down. So he tries to combine that equation with Einstein's E equals mc squared. Oh, and Kellen, have you ever thought you read a book and then you find out years later that you read the abridged version? I did that with Le Miz and I am Malala. <laughs> Anyway, I'm pissed, because I found out we've all been reading the abridged E equals MC squared. (laughs) That's the the one that only works for objects at rest. The full one is E squared equals MC squared squared plus PC squared, which I think is much more beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's much catchier. So Dirac, Dirac combines the Schrodinger equation with Einstein's equation, and it's a mess. It's really ugly and complicated. But then he does something interesting, and... Again, you don't need to understand this for the story to work. But he says, okay, I've been assuming every electron orbital has only two spin states, which those are just states that an electron can be in. But he says, what if I assumed they had four? And all of a sudden, his math became so simple and elegant and beautiful. And he's like, that must be the right equation. And that was how he found out about antimatter. So antimatter was later proved to exist, and Dirac discovered it just because it made his math beautiful. Wow With that, I do want to add a disclaimer that science still had to go out and prove antimatter. So I'm not telling you, as listeners, to just believe any belief that you find beautiful. (laughs) All right, random facts. So there's this principle from Max Planck that science advances one funeral at a time. He says a new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents, but rather because its opponents eventually die. So when I want to do good in the world, I go kill some scientists.
1: (laughs) So I thought it was fun uh, that apparently the idea for beaming people in Star Trek was just a budgetary necessity. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that it would have cost uh, way too much to create other models and just animate the transport, the transport of people from a uh, planet to ships. So they're like, what if we just did like a sciencey magic trick?
0: <laughs> it's like if in Star Wars, lightsabers fuse the wounds because they couldn't afford like squibs of fake blood. <laughs> <laughs> so for me the saddest part of this book is that king kong couldn't actually exist because all his bones would break <laughs> oh, so when, when animals get bigger strength increases with the cross-sectional area of their bones and muscles but weight increases with their volume so if king kong were 10 times bigger than a gorilla that means he's 100 times stronger but a thousand times heavier <laughs> So he brings up that, you know, that thing you heard as a kid, like, oh, if an ant were your size, it could lift 10 people. It's like, no, it would just die. (laughs) Also, gymnasts and figure skaters tend to be shorter because they get more proportional strength, which I thought was fascinating. Like, Simone Biles is like 4'8", and she's, you know, the greatest of all time. Mm. I'd never
1: considered that before. The the reason that giraffes can be so tall is just because they are also very narrow, I imagine. So a realistic King Kong would just look more like a hairy slender man. (laughs) (laughs) That would be so
0: much scarier. Can you imagine his arms snaking (laughs) through?
1: This this 10-story tall (laughs) animal that's just as wide as I am. So, (laughs) So I learned from this book that to produce a laser blast, like for a Star Wars laser gun, you would need the energy of several power stations. All of that to fit in the palm of your hand. Wow. Can you imagine how crazy Han
0: Solo would look with that bulky of a holster? (laughs) So, Kellen, I have a question for you. Do you believe in UFOs? No. Okay. My Uncle Ben showed me that recent 60 Minutes episode that came out on UFOs. Did you watch that? No. I think there's something happening. I don't know what it is, and I don't know if it's UFOs but after watching that video which i recommend everyone watch i can't believe we're not all always talking about it so the reason why i don't if another species was go-
1: was going to visit us and they crossed you know 40 trillion miles to get to where we are why are they stopping 2 miles above the planet that they've discovered i'm sure that the air force has tested a ton of stuff that none of us knew about so i believe in a ufo in that sense that like this it's an object that has not been identified up there. But um, the other reason why I don't believe in them is that we are now in a place where 2 billion people have working video cameras in the palm of their hand. And yet every single UFO video is a blurry image that's miles away. Like
0: there is nothing high def. So they're talking to multiple military people who have observed and like documented objects moving faster than we think our technology or China's technology can move and like accelerating in ways they haven't seen before and several of them they're like if I hadn't seen it with these other people who are with me I wouldn't have told anybody i just wonder like the idea behind it i wonder why
1: like, if we were going to visit another planet, why would our plan be, all right, once we get into their clouds, we're just sort of going <laughs> to zip everywhere.
0: <laughs> we're not going to talk to anyone. We're not, you know. I do think, I think that's funny from a comedic angle. The reason I'm hesitant to write it off for that reason is sort of the Semmelweis thing. Do you remember Semmelweis? He was the hand-washing doctor. He was like, hey, when I wash my hands, my mother's giving birth don't die as much. You should all wash your hands. And everyone's like, you idiot. And, And he died in an insane asylum. And people were just like, we can't imagine the reason why you would be right. So we're going to like ignore your evidence. And so I'm hesitant to be like, I can't imagine what the scenario is in which the UFOs are coming and behaving this way. So I'm going to disregard this. I don't know. I'm not saying I believe in UFOs, but I'm saying after watching that 60 Minutes which seems like a pretty reputable segment. I'm like, I'm not writing this off. I just
1: think that the conclusion is going to be simpler than we think. I think that it is exciting to believe in UFOs for the same reason that it is exciting to believe in Bigfoot. Um, But it's also like it's trying to catch the end of a rainbow, you know. Again, (laughs) the only Bigfoot pictures we have are those fake ones from the 70s. Um, but again in these images they're just like milliseconds of a blurry thing right it's not like we see aliens driving by in a ship like peace sign but i would say that that's not the evidence
0: upon which i'm saying oh there might be something here
1: also i'm very aware that most of our listeners are going to be on your side with this (laughs) i don't know (laughs) No, but I will. I'm against the principle of arguing against something that I haven't experienced. So I am going to
0: watch it and then uh, we'll talk about it. After watching the 60 Minutes thing and hearing. A bunch of different people from within the military describe their experiences. It's like one of a handful of possibilities. Either multiple people in the military are lying for some reason, or they've had a shared psychosis or delusion for some reason, or it's something we're working on, or another global power is working on, or Mm. it's something from outside this world. I don't know what else it could be besides those five things. Mm. Or it's a prank. It's a great prank. (laughs) So I love the
1: story that apparently in the 1950s, there was a dust storm on Mars. So just the peaks of this mountain range sort of showed up above uh, this dust storm. It looked like it spelled sort of a squiggly M. And so lots of people were scared that the M was for Mars and that Mars was like going to attack us as like there's so many <laughs> things that have to happen for like first of all they have to think that not even the most used language on the planet is the one that they use and then they have to also just call themselves Mars <laughs> but then other people are like, maybe we have the solar system upside down and it's a W for war. (laughs) And people were like legitimate. Some people were legitimately scared of it. I mean, 60 minutes did this whole thing at the time. And, (laughs) but it's crazy because there are so many W words. (laughs) Like it could have been something. I didn't come up with anything. (laughs) (laughs) Whack-a-mole. McDonald's should have just
0: owned it. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm a big fan of the idea, no wasted effort, meaning, you know, your weird hobbies, your career failures can help you down the line. And Kaku points out, alchemists never did alchemy, but they did learn a lot about chemistry. And perpetual motion machine people never made one, but they learned about laws of thermodynamics. So maybe the way to fix our science classes is to lie to kids and say it'll make them super rich. And at the end, they're not rich, but they know what ions are.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That is the hard thing for me about most of public schooling is that you you get out of high school and you're like, hold on, like, when do I need to use differential equations? (laughs) And all the adults are like, never. But now you know how to study. But what's funny is that there are cases where differential equations are very useful. I mean, that was just an example. Yeah. I, I should have said like the Spanish Civil War.
0: <laughs> I No, I honestly wish, I wish that school had taught me a lot more about the why behind anything, behind mm. anything I learned. Because if I knew the why or why something is interesting or important or useful— Man, that that makes it so much richer. Instead, it's like, all right, memorize this Wikipedia page, and then memorize this Wikipedia page. My like self education after school is so much more valuable because I know the why behind everything I'm trying to learn.
1: Oh, I agree. Like, um, I was so intimidated by calculus uh, when I started it. Not just because I was fourteen.
0: <laughs> Did you genuinely not have a takeaway for this one? And. <laughs> No. You just needed the pretense for the joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's up.
1: <laughs> <It> was... <laughs> but my calculus teacher, she brought in this lumpy loaf of sourdough bread and said calculus is how we figure out the volume of this shape. Mm. So immediately there is this concrete example of what I'm going to be doing rather yeah. than just this intimidating word of calculus just in my mind being uh, the next the next rung on the ladder above trigonometry. Right.
0: I read a book called Naked Statistics and at the beginning he's just like here's why I love statistics. And he just talks about it with so much passion and all its uses that it's like, oh, I'm catching the fire for this very dull subject.
1: <laughs> the way that he hooks
0: you, does he say at
1: the very end of the book? Because he's just like, I wasn't wearing clothes when I wrote this.
0: <laughs> the end. Did I tell you about the phone job interview I did naked?
1: <laughs> yes, that's not something I forget. I don't know that it's been on the podcast. <laughs>
0: So I'm interviewing for this job at a firm that I wasn't quite sure I wanted it and I was busy and I was stressed and I'm staying at this hotel And I have this phone interview and I'd just gotten out of the shower and I was like as a confidence booster I'm gonna do this naked (laughs) And I did it I did it with the confidence that comes from knowing something they don't (laughs) That's why I'm so confident during this podcast (laughs) All right, to recap, our five favorite lessons from Physics of the Impossible. One, there may be patterns to intelligent life. Two, teeny tiny spaceships are our first chance for achieving near light speed. Three, we are in the ultimate Goldilocks zone. (laughs) It's true, I I can only think of the old lady now. (laughs) Four, we are way farther from true AI than we think. Five, sometimes beauty can lead to truth. And six, speaking of truth...
1: As Dave said, believe everything you watch on TV.